in fairness to the young men distributing those handouts, I'll reserve my greetings for a few moments. But I will make an explanation of these handouts. Some weeks ago, we had a brother by the name of Richard Harrison visit our ecclesia in Hamilton and gave us a talk on the Sea of Galilee. And during that talk, he made a presentation of the fact that Andrew, one of Jesus' disciples, was a remarkable person, and he went on to talk about it. Well, it... it, uh, caused something to twig in my mind that there was a testimony that had been written in 1950 regarding the disciples, which was probably the the best that I have ever read on the subject of the disciples of Christ. It was called the Disciples Issue, and in it there is remarkable material. And I've tried to duplicate some of it here for your use tonight and hopefully in future studies on your own. I would like to bring all of you the greetings of your brothers and sisters from our Ecclesia in Hamilton. We're keeping busy and we are all looking forward to that great and glorious day of our son's return. And many of our folk there have sent their best wishes to you down here, and their prayer is that this be a fruitful and successful Bible school. And to date, it has been that. You know, this is the third night of our lectures, and with the Sunday schools, classes, and talks that have been given, About two-thirds of my material has been covered. Uh, Ernie discussed the matter of Peter, and it was discussed today by Tom about the relationship of the family unit. And some of these things are what I hope to talk about tonight. 2,000 years ago, almost to the date, A man was born in the city of Bethlehem that has changed the course of the whole world. This man we believe to be our Savior and our King. This man is the man who set a pattern in his life by which if we would emulate we might be successful candidates to obtain of the divine nature an awesome thought to contemplate that we, the products of the flesh, would have an opportunity of partaking of the nature of the Almighty, a nature whereby we would not die but live forevermore. That is the highest 
desire that any member of the human race could have. When we look around us and see the pain and sorrow and suffering that's going on around us, isn't it wonderful to have a hope such as that? Now this man, as we said, was born virtually 2,000 years ago. And if Usher's chronology is correct, and you know that Usher apparently was an Irish monk who devoted his entire life to study the genealogies from the beginning of time up until the time of Christ. And he concluded in his calculations that Christ was born in 04 A.D. And if my calculations are right, that's exactly 2,000 years ago. In the reckoning of the Almighty, that is but two days, a thousand years for a day basis. And so we're entering in on the third day, as it were, on, on that basis. This is an observation. It's not meant to be uh, anything uh, of great moment. But, you know, in the scriptures, there are a number of occasions when the number three has been used. In the case of Abraham, he went for three days after being told to go and offer up his son, and he went to Mount Moriah. And on the third day, the enactment took place where, in effect, he offered his son. Noah was three days in the belly of the whale. Uh, our Savior was three days in the earth. Now, it may only be coincidence, but we are on the third day in relation to the time frame of the Almighty. It's only an observation. Now, to get into the subject of the matter of the disciples, it is necessary to begin where our brother took us today, Brother Ray in the, uh, J rather, in the Gospel of Luke. Now, we are talking tonight about the 12 disciples that Jesus called out to assist him in his work. If we were to talk but five minutes on each of them, you know how long we'd be here. Obviously, we can't do it. And we hope that what we do here tonight does not appear to be, to you, superficial. But I think we can make at least two important observations when we look at these disciples of Christ. Disciple, as you know, means learner. And it wasn't until the disciples had passed that period of learning that they were appointed as apostles. There are four accounts in the scriptures of where all these men are listed. Now on that handout that you have, there is a list of all the 12 apostles on the one side. And we'll make reference to it as we go on. In the Gospel of Luke, to start the story correctly, and as I say, if you would turn with me, to this book, there's a few observations we would like to make. The whole story 
of the work of Jesus began with John the Baptist. And we read today how that uh, priest performing in the temple service at Jerusalem had an encounter with Gabriel. And this man, Zacharias, was told that his aged wife would have a son. And of course, he being elderly, said, well, this isn't possible in his mind. And of course, because of that, and the doubt that he showed, he was unable to speak for a period of time. In the completion of his temple service, he went to his home. And this is extremely interesting if if you get the uh, background that's involved. In the chapter in Luke, it says that he was practicing the offering of the incense. And the period of his service was done. And if you go back in the records, you will find that under David and Solomon, there was a priestly order set up whereby a priest would perform a duty for a certain period of time. Then he'd have time off, and another group would come in and take his place. Well, this is what had taken place here. His work was finished, and he went home. And after this great announcement that was made to him in the city of Jerusalem, while he was performing in the temple, he went to his home at Beth Shemesh. Now, that may may not mean anything to you, but if you were to look that up, it is one of the cities that was given to the Levites from the tribe of Judah, as suggested in Joshua, the 21st chapter. So this city of Beth Shemesh, outside of Jerusalem, was where Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth retired. Now, as we read on in the record in Luke, we find that in the 26th verse, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto the city of Galilee unto Nazareth to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And this tremendous announcement is made to this young woman about the fact that she had been selected by the Almighty to bear the Son of God, that this man who was to be Emmanuel was to be born of her. Now, this young lady was engaged to a man in the city of Nazareth, uh, Joseph. And this young lady in the city of Nazareth receives this visit of Gabriel. And she is shocked that she should be so honored. But the amazing thing is, in this account, is verse 36. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth hath also conceived a son her old age, and is in the sixth month with her 
who was called barren. And what happens? This young lady, Mary, she could have been from anywhere from 12 to 20 years old, a very young woman. And the shock of being told that she was pregnant was such that she realized that there would carry a stigma with it. And the fact that she had been honored to be selected as to be the mother of God's son was also a tremendous burden. And what did she do? You know, she probably went through what we would call a roller coaster uh, emotional ride. What was she to do? And what did she do? She went to visit her elderly aunt who would be in Beth Shemesh. And the account in Luke, and you're familiar with it, the encounter of these two women, it's, it's a remarkable account of how the woman, Elizabeth, had the child leap in her womb when she met Mary, whom she realized would be the mother of her Lord. This was a tremendous charged emotional situation, one that we can hardly contemplate. And yet, it was the working out of the Almighty's plan. Now, after a period of time in there, Mary goes back home. Now, this may sound very easy to, to talk about. She went home. She went back to her family. Now, you, you can imagine what she was thinking about. Obviously, she had been comforted and consoled in her situation with her encounter with Elizabeth. But she had to go back to her own people, to the city of Nazareth, where the people knew that this woman was pregnant and it was by Joseph. Because during the ministry of Jesus, occasionally they would say of him, we were not born of fornication. So obviously the people knew the situation at that time. So also in the account in Matthew, it tells us that Joseph took Mary, and it was obviously after her return to Nazareth, and claimed her as his wife. Now, as we read on the account, Jesus was born. And he brought, and Mary brought forth God's son. Now, the event of that, as we said, was tremendous. One of the things that is interesting in the scriptures, it says at the birth of Christ, all the world was in expectation. Why were they in expectation? The world was in expectation because these were Jewish people. These were people who had been coached and taught from the law. And the law taught that there would come a prophet that would be for the redemption of the people. A greater son of David would come. He would be that seed of Abraham by whom all families of the earth would be blessed. But because of the writings of the prophet Daniel, they knew that that period of 70 
years was about up, 70 weeks period. And they were expecting something. So that when Jesus was born, there were men like uh, Simon, there were men, or women like Anna, the prophetess, who were in the temple at the time that Jesus' parents brought him there and recognized him as the man through whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. Jesus grows into manhood. But before that, an incident took place that we'd like to comment briefly on. That was his encounter in the city of Jerusalem on the annual trek that his parents made from Nazareth down to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. See, his parents were God-fearing people. i got to back up here for a moment. You know, any talks is just as good as getting it in sequence. And I've already gotten mine out of sequence. The question I was going to ask back here later, how could Elizabeth and Mary be cousins? Have you ever thought of it? You know, a member of the tribe of Levi could not marry out of Levi. But a Levite-ish woman could marry out, but she would forsake all the benefits that went with being a daughter of the Levites. As you know, the Levites were sustained by the contributions that the rest of the tribes made. And any of the Levite families would therefore be suckered by that. So that when a woman would marry out of the tribe of Levi, she would lose that. So the conclusion we have to have is that Mary's mother and Elizabeth's mother were sisters and that Mary's mother was a Levite. And that would be the way that she and Mary would be cousins. Remember that. As we come down, we find that Jesus, at the age of 12, is taken by his parents to the city of Jerusalem. And there he astounded the doctors of the law with his ability of answering questions and asking questions. They marveled at his knowledge. He returns and stays in the area of Nazareth for around 18 years. Then John the Baptist comes on the scene. At the age of 30, he begins his ministry, which is in accordance to the situation under the law of Moses. A man could not take an office as a teacher or a leader until the age of 30. So John comes on the scene at the age of 30, being six months older than Jesus. And he begins to baptize and teach the forgiveness of sin in the city of Beth Arabia, which is just above the Dead Sea. Now, at the time of Jesus' ministry, Jesus comes down this distance here to be baptized of John. 
Now, I was asking somebody the other day how far Little Rock is from here, and they said it's about 60 miles. Well, the calculations from Nazareth down to Beth Arabia is about 70 miles. So he walked down there. You know, in this day and age of travel that we have, the contemplation of a walk of 70, mile, 70 miles is an awesome thing. We, we, there's no way in the world we'd do it. But here, on that time and age, walking was the means of transportation, and nothing was thought of that. At the encounter of Jesus' uh, baptism with John the Baptist, John sees Jesus coming, and he says, and Jesus requests baptism. I, I'm not looking up. I'm trying to paraphrase these to make as much time as we can. And John says to Jesus, you come to me to be baptized. I should be baptized of thee. That suggests to me that John the Baptist knew somewhat about Jesus, albeit at that time he had not been identified by the power of the Almighty through the revelation of the Spirit descending on him in the form of a dove. Now, just think about it. How do you suppose if John the Baptist had been raised most of his youth in Beth Shemesh, and Jesus had been raised in Nazareth, how would John have known anything about Jesus? Where do you suppose John's father was during the time when Jesus was at the temple in, at the age of 12. Do you think his father might have been one of those priests that were in there and heard this marvelous, precocious child speaking with such wisdom and understanding about the law? It's a very good likelihood. The other suggestion is that if Mary, at the time of the Annunciation, came down from Nazareth to Beth Shemesh to be with her cousin Elizabeth, is it not possible that at the time of their treks from the age 12 and on, that they might also have a family met together in the city of Jerusalem or even in Beth Shemesh? It's a, a possibility. And I suggest to you that because of that, that was why the apostle, or rather the, the prophet John, would say to Jesus that I have need to be baptized of thee. And so, at this time when Jesus is immersed here in the water and the Spirit ascends onto him, there was a man there by the name of Andrew, one of the uh, disciples of John the Baptist. And this man, Andrew, was a witness of the announcement that John had made that Jesus was the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And so he comes back up to the city of Capernaum where his brother was a fisherman. And he told him about this encounter. And later, Jesus returns and comes into that area and then begins the selection of his disciples. The first of which, of course, was the calling of Peter and Andrew. Now, isn't it uh, interesting that Peter and Andrew are brothers, and these men respond. They say 
Peter, or at least Andrew, suggests to Peter that this man that they have found is the man of whom the scriptures did write, and that he was the prophet that they were looking for. This was the Messiah. This was the anointed of God. Why were they looking for that? You see, they must have been raised in a home where these things were spoken about. And so the influence of their parents caused them as uh, astute Jewish students of the law to be looking for something. And so when this announcement was made by John the Baptist that this was a Messiah, this was the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, these men were willing to follow and ready to follow him. They had been mentally conditioned by the law, by the family association, by the talking of the law. You know what? We'll come to it in a minute. The, the, the other point I would like to make on this. Jesus then goes further around and finds two other fishermen, James and John, and he calls them to him. And during the period of his teaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God and the teaching as one having authority, he convinced these many people to follow him and be his disciples. And so the long and short of it is that he called many. There was uh, Philip, as you will notice on your list here. And he was from Bethsaida, which is another area right around the, dead, or the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he calls Bartholomew, and uh, he also was an Israelite that was unique. Uh, of, of him, Jesus said he was an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Probably as great a compliment as could be given to a human being by one like the Son of Man. Then he calls Thomas and Matthew. Matthew, of course, was a publican, a man that was hated by the Jews. I, I was reading somewhere uh, recently that he was considered a quisling. Now, how many here know what a quisling is? Is there anybody? You know? Good. Anyone else? You mean that in, in a couple of hundred people, there's only one person that knows what a quizzling is? A traitor, a traitor yeah. I, I didn't see your hand. And, and how did the name come? Do you know? Pardon? That was his name, right. But what was, it was associated with a traitor. What country did he come from? Norway. Norway. Right on. You have to realize that I don't hear well. It's pretty obvious. Well, this man, Quisling, took sides with the Nazis when they invaded uh, Nor Norway. And because of that, he was hated. Now, this man, Matthew, as a publican, in effect, had done exactly the same thing when the Roman hordes had come into the uh, nation of Israel and taken them over. And this man had joined in with the Romans as a tax collector. And, of course, anybody doesn't, most people don't like tax collectors. 
in addition to the fact that he represented that authority that was occupying their land. And this man, Matthew, uh, became one of his disciples. We read on about Judas, and in these handouts here, you will find that there are many quotations about the incidents of their lives, their occupations, the place of birth, and information relating to them. But we don't have time to go on with it. Uh, Simon Zelotes. Uh, we don't know where he came from or his parentage, but we know what he was. In one place in the record of him, it says that he was a Canaanite. But apparently that is a misinterpretation or at least a mistranslation. He was not a Canaanite in the sense that he was a Gentile, but he was indeed a Jew who was what we would call a partisan fighter. And as a result of that, uh, he was a rough-and-ready type of a guy. We go on down to James and Judas Iscariot. It's interesting to note that James and Matthew have the same father. Now, isn't that kind of interesting that we have Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, we have James and John as brothers, and according to this group, uh, or at least paper, uh, Matthew and James are also brothers. Of the twelve apostles, six of them are brothers. If you turn the page over, you will find that this group of apostles, I'll get it, disciples, are in three groups. There's group one of Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and then Philip, Bartholomew, and group three of James, uh, Alpheus, and so on. There are 12 men. They're grouping into three groups, and it suggests in this grouping that the first group were the ones that were the closest and most active with Jesus, while the second group were mediocre, and the third group were peripheral, albeit they were with him all the time. And a quick comment, this could probably be a pretty good appraisal of some of our ecclesias. You have an inner core that's doing all the work and uh, maybe criticized for it, but they're in there plugging all the way. There's another group that is very close to them, and then we also have those that are also ran. Interesting. Now, this group of 12 men, some of whom were married, uh, Peter, followed Jesus for a period of three and a half years during his ministry. They were commissioned to go out with him and teach. And as a group, they moved through the country. Now, there was a odd inn in the country, if you recall, uh, when Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem, there was no room in the inn for them. So obviously there were some places of accommodation for people. You remember the story of the... uh, good Samaritan who suckered the injured person and took him to an inn. So obviously there were some of them. But they were not set up to handle crowds. Uh, As a group of 12 men with their hangers on of the women and that, you found a very large group who would be coming into your city. How were they accommodated? 
Well, they had a common kitty, and they would look after themselves as, as well as possible. Accommodation would be given to them. The Jewish people were known for their hospitality. The Apostle Paul and those like him could never have succeeded in the spreading of the gospel if it hadn't been for the accommodation afforded to them by the ecclesia, or at least the Jewish synagogues and the people there that they went to. I think this is worthy of note. The Christadelphians are noted for their hospitality in this day and age. Now, we're talking about another situation. We're talking about these men moving around. On one occasion, they came to get accommodation. Jesus sent some men into one of the cities of Samaria to arrange for the accommodation of his people. Those that went in came back and said, look, they're not going to have us. So two of the apostles, James and John, says, let's zap them. They remembered that during the time of Elijah, when he was on his commission, an army came out against him, and the power of the angel of God destroyed these armies on two occasions. So these men remembered that, and they said, well, we'll do that now. Well, of course, Jesus rebuked them and said, look, this isn't the kind of uh, way that we're trying to teach people. You know, in this day and age, it's, uh, there's a cliche that goes, uh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That wasn't invented in the 20th century. If you notice on this handout about the women helpers, that it says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome were thought to be sisters. And if you remember that it was Salome with her two sons, James and John, that came to Jesus and said to them, look, within the kingdom age, can we have the inside track and get two seats, one here and one there on the side of you? And, of course, Jesus rebuked them for it. But you see the thinking of these people. And the reason I'm mentioning some of these things uh, is to show you that this cross-section of humanity that was gathered in these 12 groups, or this group of 12, represents pretty much what all of us, or some of us, have as the basis of our human nature. You know, we're all children of the flesh. And the men of that day, albeit they were in a unique situation, traveling with the Son of God, listening to him teach, seeing the demonstration of his power, and yet they had feet of clay. Now, to try and conclude something from what we have looked at here tonight hastily, Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins, maybe second cousins, two of the most famous people in the history of men were related. Jesus chose people, some of whom were his cousins, to be his assistants in his work. Others of the group were brothers who were uh, had an affinity for one another. Does this not tell us something about the community of Christadelphians? 
You know, we've been accused of being an inward-looking group, that we tend to marry within our community. We tend to keep the truth, as it were, within our confines of our own community, albeit teaching efforts are made in many places. But in the main, our group is self-centered in its objection, objective in that we all hope to achieve a place in God's kingdom. And we're supportive of one another. As brothers of the flesh will support brothers of the flesh, so we within our community have a, a family-oriented uh, organization. And it's good. It's very good. It's not unlike it was in the beginning. And have you never heard that a young fellow is going with a girl? If you know him, you may say, well, who is she? What, what's her family? We have a tendency to orient in on the family backgrounds of individuals. And that's not bad. Because we realize the support and the need that we have for one another. As iron sharpeneth iron, so our brothers sharpen us. And so we as a community can grow and prosper as a community, a family-oriented effort in serving the Almighty. And so that shows that as a community, just as these men back in that day were looking for the Messiah, that it is the responsibility of we who are parents and grandparents to see that our children and our grandchildren are instructed to be looking for that great and glorious day that this man Christ Jesus initiated at his coming. And that at his second coming, he will come in all his glory to execute the judgments written. That's the day we're looking for. And that's the day that we should encourage one another at all times. But there's another very, I think, screaming example to me in, in this group of men, of this group of 12. You know, there were, in many cases, they were, to put it kindly, a, a very rough and ready group. They were fishermen, as Brother pointed out this morning. They weren't above cursing. Uh, and uh, they were rough and tumble type of guys. They didn't think twice about calling destruction on others. One of them said he was known to be a thief. And, of course, he displayed his hand in the... the denial and the turning in of his Lord and Master Jesus, Judas. But these men had feet of clay just you, like you and I. They had a real problem. They had to wrestle with the flesh exactly like we do. And the very fact that these men were able to rise above what was natural to them shows that there can be 
hope for us. Think of the work that these men did. Some of them gave their lives in the service of the Lord, were martyrs. James was killed by Herod. And uh, others, Peter uh, requested that when they crucified him, that he be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same way as his Lord. These men that ministered to the Lord during the time of his three and a half years on the earth, these men who gave their lives thereafter as his servants, his devoted servants, serve as an example to us. We have our faults, and some of us have a lot more than others. And some of us struggle every day to try and rise above the impulses that are within all of us. But the very fact that these 12 men were able to rise above their human frailties and become giants in the work of the Lord gives encouragement to us. And so in this day and age, let us look at them not as objects of worship, but as real people with real problems that they overcame and will be judging on the 12 thrones of the tribes of Israel, an honor that they deserve and an honor that we pray they may soon receive. So therefore, my exhortation to you is look at these men and use them as examples of encouragement in our walk to this day.